This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Jesus. Amen. Well, this is, this is wild and, and wonderful. Just one of those touches from the Lord. But uh, this, this morning, I was looking at our, our order of worship, <clears throat> and I saw where we were going to sing that song right before I, I, I preached. And the song that we just sung, I believe, is taken from the Apostles' Creed. And so... I had no idea we were going to sing that right before I preach, but I did know that right before I preached today, we were going to say the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> and, so, and so we just sung it, <laughs> and now we are going to say it today. You know, it is so important uh, for uh, the early Christians used the ancient creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. They memorized these creeds because it was, it was, a, it was a way of succinctly uh, help, helping them, teaching them the primary doctrines of our faith, you know, and, and it was also, it's, the creeds are guardrails. They guard us from error in the crazy world we're living in. We need guardrails, you know. We, we need to, to know what, what is, what is the, the core of our faith that we are going to stand on. This is who we are. This is our identity um, and so it's really important for us to, uh, to say, to affirm our faith together. And so we're going to do that in just a moment. I mean, whenever we say the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed, I, I emphasize, if, if you're new, you know, there's a part of it where we say, I, I believe in the Holy uh, Catholic Church. That's not talking about Roman Catholicism. That doesn't have anything to do with Roman Catholicism. These are ancient creeds. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are ancient creeds. That, they, they were put together before there ever was a Roman Catholic Church. It's, this is Catholic with a little c, which means that you are a part, in addition to being part of your local church, you are a part of the Catholic Church, little c, which means that you are part of the global church with every other born-again believer on this earth. Um, and so it's a, it's a powerful thing. Let's stand together and affirm, affirm our faith together as we say the Apostles' Creed together. Say it out loud with me as, as, as I read. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. That is who we are. You can be seated. I want you to open your Bibles this morning um, to Luke 24. Uh, we have been in a series from the Gospel of Luke. We've been walking through Luke. Recall, we've called this series, Tell Me the Story 
of Jesus. And we've been looking at the parts of Luke's gospel that are, that are unique to the gospel of Luke. And so we looked at some u- unique things about Luke's account of the cross last week. And today we're going to look at some things that are unique about his presentation of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, which we just uh, remembered together as we said the Apostles' Creed. Our risen and ascended king. What a, this, we, this is the only way that we would want to end a, end a series when we're going through a gospel. This is the way we want to end a series called Tell Me the Story of Jesus. Because it does not end with Jesus teaching. It does not end with Jesus on the cross. It ends with an empty tomb. It ends with Christ ascending and being exalted at the right hand of the Father. And he is coming again in victory our risen and ascended king. Let's look at Luke chapter 24, and we're going to begin with verse 36 and read to the end of the Gospel of Luke. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. He said to them, peace to you. But they were startled, terrified, and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see that I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we have read your word, we pray now that your spirit would impart it to our hearts and out into our living. And so, Lord, we, would you rid us of any distractions right now? Lord, would, would be, we, we'd just be ready to hear from you right now and just be locked in on what you want to say to us. Lord, beautiful things can happen. When, when, when our hearts and minds are open and when your word is at work in the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, would you, would you work now? Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. On September 11th, 2001, Greg Gilbert, who was one of the pastors at the time at Capitol Hill Baptist Church up in D.C., was on a plane somewhere over the Atlantic bound for Scotland. And 
at some point during the flight, the, the pilot came on the intercom and he told his passengers about the attacks that had happened in New York and in D.C. on that day. But the, the, the problem was that at that time, information was still coming in. And, and some of the information that he told them, especially about what had happened in D.C., was incorrect. Instead of telling them that the Pentagon had been attacked, he told them that the Capitol had been attacked, that the Capitol building was destroyed, and that the area adjacent to the Capitol building had been destroyed. Well, Greg's fiance worked at the Capitol building, along with many of his friends. His church was in the neighborhood, just adjacent to the Capitol. And so he spent several hours on that flight trying to process the fact that in all likelihood, the woman that he had planned on spending his life with was likely dead, and that most of his friends were likely dead. And when they landed, he, he found the truth, out the truth, and you know, they were alive, and it was a moment of, of great of rejoicing, but it, it was a lot to process. And when we read Luke 24, what we see is the followers of Jesus are trying to process because in their case, they didn't just think that Jesus might be dead. They knew that Jesus was dead. They had watched him die. But then on that Sunday morning, different reports begin to, to come in from the, the, the women who were at the tomb, from Peter and John, from the two on the road to Emmaus. And on Easter Sunday, on April 9th, we, we, we looked at, at some of those, uh, those, those, those first accounts of the resurrection of Christ. But today, we're going to look at the, the rest of the story, beginning in verse 36. So what do we see here at, at the ending of Luke's gospel? First of all, we see the reality of his resurrection in verses 36 through 43. Let's check out verses 36 and 37 together. It says, as they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst, and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. There are times in the Christian life when God just surprises us with something that is so beautiful that reality, you know, outstrips our imagination. Ephesians 3.20 says this. It says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine. And so it was that morning. It seemed too good to be true, <laughs> but in reality, it was too good not to be true. And this was no ghost story. Verses 38 through, through 40, Jesus says, why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see that I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, it's interesting that the, the glorified body of Jesus still bore the marks of his crucifixion. You know, God could have erased them. His body was now post-resurrection. It was a glorified body, but, but God chose to, to keep the marks of his passion 
on his hands and feet and his side. I love what Charles Spurgeon, the great British pastor, said about, about this. He gives a couple of reasons why. Spurgeon says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he rose again from the dead, had in his body the marks of his passion. What was the reason for this? First, it was to establish his identity, that he was the same Jesus they had followed. It was the same Christ, for there was the seal of his sufferings. Another reason Jesus wears his wounds is that when he intercedes, he may employ them as powerful advocates. When he rises to pray for his people, he need not speak a word. He may simply lift his hands before his father's face. He makes bare his side and points to his feet. These are the orators with which he pleads with God these wounds. Wow. You know, and it's by these wounds that we are healed. Isaiah 53 and verse 5 says, But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We are made whole by his wounds. And then, as if they needed any more evidence <laughs> that Jesus was before them, look at verses 41 through 43. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate in their presence. Now, once again, it is the physicality of Jesus' body that is being emphasized here. Ghosts don't eat, you know, and so it, it, it was, again, another, the emphasis is on the physical nature of his body. Now, we saw when we looked at his burial that there, that there were great, Luke goes to great lengths to, to talk about in granular detail the circumstances of his burial, that Joseph of Arimathea took his body down from the cross, that he and Nicodemus uh, anointed it with, uh, with spices, you know. And so the emphasis there was that this was a real body. Jesus, his, he, Jesus was really dead. His body was in the tomb, and now, as he is in, his, in his resurrection, this is a real body. It's a glorified body, a supernatural body, because he can pass through locked doors and just appear, but it is physical. Physical. He can be touched. He can eat. And when Christ returns and glory, and we as his people are raised with our glorified bodies, we're gonna have bodies like that. Bodies that are physical, and yet bodies that are, 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 that are, that are transformed, no longer subject to, uh, to, to death. First John chapter three and verse two says, dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. You know, as we go through life, we become more and more aware of the bad stuff that can happen to these unglorified bodies of ours. But that is only for a moment in time. As Christians, we are gonna be raised for all eternity with glorified bodies. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17 says, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Romans 8 and verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So we see the reality of his resurrection there and, and how that speaks to our own resurrection that is going to come one day. Second, the clarity of his commission. The clarity of his commission. We see this in verses 44 through 49. We think of the Great Commission as being in, in Matthew 28, uh, but there's a, 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 another, another Great Commission account here in, in Luke 24. But let's look, look, first of all, here at verses 44 through 45. He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus wants them and us to understand that everything that had happened was a fulfillment of the Old Testament and that it was confirmation of the truth of the Old Testament, of God's word. You know, when I was in, in college as an undergraduate, in, in a lot of my religion classes, the, the, the theology was very liberal and and I was taught that, you know, there were errors in the Bible and so forth. And I was a relatively new believer at the time. It was very confusing. And I had to really dig in, you know, and, and sort through, you know, what, what do I really believe? You know, if I'm going to be in ministry, I, I've got to know where I, where I stand. And, and over the course of time, you know, it, it, as I dug in and studied, it, it became perfectly clear, you know, that I was going to stand on God's word, that I believe that God's word is completely truthful uh, without error, and that, you know, I was absolutely going to stand on that and preach that. But one of the things that God used to just, just build that into my uh, heart and life was by, when I read the four Gospels, when I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, listen, it became crystal clear to me what Jesus believed about the scriptures. When you read the four gospels, you see that Jesus punctuates his teaching with quotations from the Old Testament. It happens all the time. And it is also perfectly clear that Jesus believes every word of it. Every word of it. He says in John 10, 35, the scripture cannot be broken. It is so clear. I'm like, how can, how can we have a different view of the scripture than Jesus has of the scripture? I mean, you know, it, we, don't, we, don't stay, we don't stand in judgment of the scriptures. The scripture stands in judgment of us. We don't put ourselves above the scriptures. We put ourselves under the scriptures. And we believe about the scriptures, what Jesus believed about the scriptures, that this is the very word of God, that this is fully truthful. And so it's so clear, you know, that Jesus believed, believed the Bible. It is perfectly clear when you read the four gospels that Jesus had soaked himself in the Bible, which we must do as followers of Jesus soaking ourselves in the scripture so that if you cut us, we bleed Bible. And then Jesus taught the scriptures. 
He taught the scriptures. He, he unpacked the scriptures. What do we see here again in verse 45? It says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now this is very similar to what it says that he does with the two from on the road to Emmaus. Look back at verse 32. This is the two that Jesus encountered on the road to Emmaus. And, and after he left, it says, they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? So Jesus taught, the, Jesus believed the scripture, he soaked himself in the scripture, and he taught the scriptures. And this is why our church is so committed to teaching the scriptures. It's why we're committed to expository preaching, where we dig into the text, and we're seeking to unpack the text of God's word, because the spirit works through his word. This is not the place for kind of, you know, shallow topical sermons. It's not the place for sermonettes for Christianettes. If, we need, if we're going to grow, we need to dig into the word of God. And I believe that God blesses churches that will stand on his word and send missionaries to the nations. Let's look at verses 46 through 49, speaking of sending missionaries to the nations. Verse 40, 46. He also said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. So we see here the, the clarity of this commission. Now, Jesus, um, Jesus, Jesus wants us to understand here um, that 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 we are that we are that we are that we are sent out by him on mission. It's ve- it's very interesting when you read these verses. They should sound very familiar because when you look at the first chapter of Acts, you can see how Acts one eight is like it's just like a continuation of this, and indeed that is the case because Luke and Acts are really volume one and two of the same volume. I know in our Bible, the Gospel of John comes between the two books, but really Luke and Acts are are really kind of a unit. And Luke 24 just carries right over into Acts one. So what do we see in Acts chapter one and verse eight? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what we see in Acts 1.8, we can see here in, in, in Luke 24 that we are called to be his witnesses, that we are going to be empowered by the Spirit 
and that we are to go to all the nations in verse 47. That, that phrase in Greek is pontata ethne. It's the exact same phrase that we see in Matthew 28 and verse 19. When Jesus says there, go and make disciples of all nations. It's the exact same phrase in the original here. Pontata ethne. Ethne is where we get the word ethnic from. It means that we are to go to every people group. Every group on earth that is, that is distinguished by their own you know, language and culture and ethnicity. They're, they're, uh, every people group. Not only every nation in the sense of, you know, kind of a political nation state, because within a lot of countries, a lot of, a lot of uh, modern nations, there are hundreds of people groups, uh, places like India, right? Hundreds of different language and languages and people groups. We are to go to every one of them. All the nations means every tribe and tongue, every people group on earth. Recently, one of our one of our vice presidents at, at the International Mission Board woke up in the middle of the night and he couldn't get his mind off of the figure of 3,000 because there are about 3,000 people groups on earth that are not only unreached with the gospel, um, but they're unengaged with the gospel. In other words, no one, no one from any missions organization is working among these these 3,000 people groups, and there are reasons for that. They're in incredibly uh, difficult, hard places to live, dangerous places, um, but he was just burdened by God's spirit that night and just tossing and turning. God, this is unacceptable. You know, this figure of 3,000 unreached and unengaged people groups, it's been static, you know, for a number of years. What can we do? So God just birthed in his heart a vision that we're calling at IMB Project 3000, where over the next 10 years, hundreds of, of young people, mainly, mainly uh, young singles or young couples without, without children because of the nature of these places where they're going to be going, hundreds of these young people are going to be going into these areas, learning about these people groups, beginning to engage them with the gospel and setting the stage for longer-term workers to go and live among them. And the prayer is that by 2033, this horrible number of 3,000 that we'll be able to take away the, the three and two of those zeros so that the number is zero that is unreached and unengaged. Pray for that. You were a part of it. You were a part of it already through your, through your giving. This is a part of, this is, this is what you are a part of through the ministry of our church, the global outreach of our church as we send, as we send, as we give that people might be sent. The clarity of his commission. Third, the glory of his ascension, which we see in verses 50 through 53. Let's look at verses 50 and 51. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, and while lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up to heaven. <clears throat> now, this is the ascension of Christ. Luke makes it clear in Acts 1-3 that it actually takes place 40 days after his resurrection. 
What is the significance of the ascension of Jesus? We do not talk about this nearly enough. And so sometimes Christians are left with just sort of a, a vague idea. You know, Jesus goes up, he disappears in the clouds, and, you know, and it's kind of left there. And we're left with sort of a, a, a truncated story of Jesus. But in the Bible, that's not where it ends, right? Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is exalted, and his exaltation means that he is coming again in victory to make all things new. See, the ascension is super important. And so I want us to look at, at five things that are really significant about the ascension of Christ. First of all, the ascension points to Christ's triumph and exaltation. So as we read the Apostles' Creed together, we said together, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will return to judge the living and the dead. Christ is ascended to be, to, 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 for his exaltation. It points to his triumph, his exaltation, and, and that he is coming again as the exalted king to rule and reign and to destroy evil. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26 says, For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Second, the early Christian sermons point to the ascension. Especially when you look at the early Christian sermons in Acts, the ascension is a prominent part of that proclamation. So Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and verses 32 and 33 says, God has raised us, Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God. Again, in Acts 3 and verses 19 through 21. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed to you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Again, in Acts chapter 5 and verses 30 and 31, the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, he exercises power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So all of this early Christian preaching points prominently to the ascension of Jesus, his exaltation now in the heavens, which points to the fact that he is coming again in victory to make all things new. Third, Christ's ascension triggers the outpouring of the Spirit. So in John 16, in verse 7, Jesus says there, Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I, I, if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying there, the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out when I am ascended. 
Acts chapter 2, Peter confirms this in Acts 2, verses 32 and 33. God raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Fourth, the ascended Christ now intercedes for us. Romans 8 and verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Hebrews 7 and verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. The risen, ascended Christ is praying for you today. Finally, the, the, the major creeds, the major Christian creeds and confessions prominently feature the ascension. We just read earlier one of them, uh, the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed says, on the third day, <clears throat> he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. <clears throat> the Nicene Creed says on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. <clears throat> Our own Baptist faith and message says this of Christ. He ascended into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of God where he is the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person... <clears throat> has affected the reconciliation between God and man, he will return in power and glory to judge the world and to consummate his redemptive mission. <clears throat> Let's look at the closing of Acts, verses 52 and 53, of the closing of Luke. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. When we think about the story of Jesus that we've looked at and all of its grandeur, all of its scope, how can we do anything but praise God? Worship him. Bear witness for him faithfully until he comes. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you for uh, your spirit in making sure that it was preserved in written form for us. And Lord, may we not only believe the Bible, but Lord, may we soak ourselves in the scriptures. Lord, may our, may our Bibles not sit on our shelves Monday through Saturday, inspired, inerrant, and unread. Lord, make us students who are digging into your word and feeding upon the riches of your word that our lives might just be strengthened day by day. Lord, help us to, to, to tell this, to preach this story to ourselves every day and help us to share this story with others every day. Lord, until you come or until you call us home, Lord, make us faithful to, to worship you 
and to bear witness for you. And it's in the name of Christ. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.